Welcome to Is There Kale in My Teeth, the podcast. I'm your host, Rifki Rubinowitz, an interior design trained lifestyle and wellness expert, mom to three girls, and editor of Mitchbacha's Family Room magazine. On each podcast episode, you will meet incredible women who have empowering, entertaining, and educational messages to share with me and with you. Stick around. It's wild and it's raw. Just the way we like it. Ooh, For any of my followers or who are finding you here, please introduce yourself to us. Thank you. I am Alea. I am the founder and operator of Alea B Coaching, which is my coaching practice that I recently transitioned into sex and relationship coaching specifically. So I'm a certified sex coach, certified life coach. I hold a master's degree in education with a minors in psychology and whole bunch of other trainings and credentials that I will not go into at this time. Um, I work with individuals one-on-one or couples in one-on-one sets, um, settings. I also host public workshops on a variety of topics. Uh, most recently, the last class that I gave was how to give children a healthy sex education. Before we even talk about defining love languages, I kind of want to ask a general question, which is, what are some consistent myths or misconceptions about like a relationship and the life's, you know, journey of a relationship that you encounter all the time that you want to debunk that people are asking you all the time and you're kind of like, honey, that's an unfair expectation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I have a couple of them. I yes. think the one that I want to debunk like on a, just a worldwide level is this belief that relationships are hard. You know, if you ask people, finish the sentence, marriage, most people, even all of you listening to this, right? Marriage is hard. Mm-hmm. Right? We have perception toward relationships that they, they require hard work, but not so much that they will ask hard work from us, but that the relationship in itself means that you will have to give hard work. And it's this thing about relationships being hard, being hard, being hard. And it's like, I would love to dismantle that. Yes, relationships do bring stuff out of us, right? Relationships do trigger us and relationships do show us areas of our own growth, right? They, they often actually will pinpoint the exact thing within you that you need to grow on and magnify it. But, you know, a relationship is really only hard in itself, really, when only one person is working on it. Ooh. That right there. Ooh. Massive light bulb moment for people. If you feel like your relationship is hard, which is different to my relationship is asking me to look within myself and confront some of my own wounds or patterns or disruptive behaviors and transform those. That's different than the relationship is hard. They're only hard when one person is working on it. I just finished reading um, Daisy Jones and the Six. Yes, I read that oh, book. I love that book so much because there were these little nuggets of wisdom sprinkled in with this kind of like chaotic um, mm-hmm. narrative. I just, every word I was like, please don't be over, please don't be over. But it's making me think of something that you just said, which was um, at that time, Daisy Jones is married to this uh, like Italian prince. And she says, I was under this um, expectation that marriage was angst. And marriage was war and marriage was blood and marriage was heavy, not realizing that marriage is peace and it should make you feel lighter. 
And mm. I was like, yeah, girl, like, that's it right there. Like, it should, it, it doesn't mean that it's, it's perfect, but it means that it should make you feel lighter. It should make you feel closer to kind of figuring out what you're supposed to be doing on this earth in some yeah. capacity. Yeah, yeah. And that when conflict comes up, ideally, right, it should be that both of us are showing up for this conflict. Mm. We're both willing to work through this. And both of us not just want to sort through this conflict, but actually both of us want to support the other one through this conflict as well. Mm. Right? I not in the, I abandon my truth in order to help you through it, but more so that both of us are there to support each other. This that that it's this balance, right? And I feel like people, you know, because we have this idea that relationships are supposed to be hard. So then when they are really hard and when we're the ones carrying the weight and when it is hard over and over and over and the same thing keeps coming up over and over and over and you feel like you're encountering the same struggle and the same difficulty for you to sit there and be like, well, it makes sense that it's like this because really, this is what relationships are like. No, 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 no. That is actually should be a red flag and you should pay attention to that. So I want to talk a little bit about relationships in general. So you started out, you, you kind of niched down into being this kind of therapist relationship coach. And I want to know, I guess, why? What are you seeing? What has changed, evolved, regressed in the landscape of relationships? So the biggest thing, and I'm actually very curious, you know, because I've been doing a lot of relationship work off of Instagram and away from the public. My private practice is primarily relationship work. Mm -hmm. oh, but this is kind of like my, my first public foray into this space. So I know how things land when I share them in sessions with clients. And I see how it is actually transforming their relationships and impacting their lives one-on-one. -on -one. So some of the things, I'm like really curious how people are going to respond to some of this, but one of the biggest shifts that I have seen collectively with relationships is that marriage itself has changed. Okay. So we look at like, you know, okay, so the divorce rate is higher than ever, right? At this point, 60% of marriages end in divorce, right? And we, everybody has like these theories about it, like, you know, and, and, and I hear so many common things like, well, people just aren't as committed as they once were. And, you know, people just see marriage as disposable at this point and people just, you know, take the easy way out and divorce is the easy way out. I'm like, first of all, nobody that has gone through a divorce would ever use the words divorce is the easy way out. Like, excuse me, take it from experience. <laughs> divorce is not the easy way out. But, um, you know, but we have these misconceptions about why marriages are now failing these days and ending in divorce. And I see it differently. I think that marriage in itself has changed. We came from centuries, I mean centuries, of marriages of convenience. That is what marriage used to be. Historically, on a societal level, men and women got married out of convenience and out of necessity. Men owned property, they owned the titles to land, they made the money. Women needed to get married. They needed to get married for status. They needed to get married to be accepted by society. They needed to get married in order to have a place to live. You basically trans was transferred from your father's home to your husband's home. And in the same exchange, right, with the convenience for men is that they got married as well to gain titles, to gain property, right, to, to gain their own status. Marriages were comprised of convenience and what made sense. And now you have a massive shift happening. This concept of marriage for love is very new. And 
very new. And I know that, right, I have, I'm sure you have a lot of people here listening that are Jewish and, and religious and from, right? And so the concept of a love-based marriage is not a new concept so much when it comes to Jewish history. You know, we know, right, that Yitzchak saw Rivka and he loved her, right? So you could think like that we Jews have this concept of love-based marriage. But we also, right, we have also been living in a world where there is also concepts in Judaism, right? We marry because the families match, and we marry because it makes sense, and, and how much do we actually date, right? But now, in, in more recent decades, I would say, there's this new phenomenon of marrying for love, mm-hmm. wanting to be married. Also, as women entered the workforce, and they did not need men anymore, they could open their bank accounts anymore. So now it's all of a sudden, I don't need you anymore. So if I'm going to marry you, going to be because I want to. Mm-hmm. And even if I'm still marrying you because I had to, because it's my community expectations or my parents arranged the match or, <laughs> or it's still what we do, mm-hmm. but still going up within marriage, where all of a sudden it's like, wait, hold up. Like, I don't, I don't have to just stay married unhappy, right? Divorce right. To the table, and now it's like, wait, if I'm going to be here, I want to want to be here. Mm-hmm. And if I want to be here, I have to like you. I have mm-hmm. to like this marriage. I have to enjoy this experience with you. And so, yeah, I think that divorce rates are at like its all time high because we are in that transitionary period where it's mm-hmm. like we are letting go of the old structure of marriage that was based on convenience and necessity and requirement and obligation, right? Preserve the marriage at all costs. Mm-hmm. Like how many of us have divorced grandparents? Right. But how many of you have happily married grandparents? I didn't. Right. My parents stayed together till the day both of them passed away and they were not happy, right? It's a very different question. Like longevity doesn't mean happiness. So the biggest shift, practically speaking, that I'm seeing in relationships now is that Couples are being forced, but a good type of force, to, to step up, to show up better in their relationships, to become the type of spouse that your spouse wants to be with. Mm-hmm. Because it's no longer working that will just stay, mm-hmm. serve the marriage at all costs. Now it's like, no, I'm actually going to like the marriage. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing that more so from women than from men. And I think part of it has to do with just how society has structured men mm-hmm. versus needs. Also because I work a little bit more with women than with men, but the biggest shift I'm seeing is women sitting up and being like, no, 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 you're going to be the type of husband that I deserve to be with, or I'm going to get out. Mm. And, wow, am I seeing transformations? I mean, it is glorious what I am observing. Like the way that I am seeing women find their voices in relationships and be like, I am going to be treated well, and I'm going to be treated with respect and with kindness and with love and with appreciation. And then the way that I'm seeing men step up and be like, okay, I need to make, and I'm not saying that men are always bad, believe me, (laughs) new, right? New. But like across the board, I'm just seeing people really lean into like being a good spouse, being, Mm. taking care of cleaning up their mess. Mm-hmm. They contribute to and be a part of the type of marriage that we want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the ride. Um, um, do you feel like it's been impacted by 
uh, like mainstream Western culture, which has been a lot about female um, empowerment and the feminist movement? Or is it just a, like, or is it just an era of enlightenment? And if it is, let's say, affected by mainstream society and Western culture, do you find that the more insulated communities are um, not as receptive to it because they're worried about societal infiltration? So that's kind of two questions. So to answer your first question, I think it's a combination of both. I think collectively, the world at large is going through a period of um, a new consciousness, mm. right? Collectively, which- Love that for us. Yeah, we are becoming so much more conscious. We are living lives on deeper levels. We are accessing parts of ourselves that we we did not know even existed. And you know, that's even sourced in Judaism. I mean, I grew up Chabad um, and like the Lubavitch Rebbe was very into like, there will be a period of awakening, right? Before Mashiach actually comes. Like, so from a religious standpoint, from a Western society standpoint, however you look at it, it is the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. And the world at large is waking up and we are just elevating and we are becoming conscious and showing up everywhere. Um, so I think I'm seeing that. And then to your second question, more insular communities. I definitely, you know, obviously within more insular communities, right? The concept of divorce is still very overwhelming and very, there's like very resistant to it, you know? And I understand that. I completely honor that. Um, you know, sometimes I have to remind my clients that it is a mitzvah to get divorced in the sense that when you are really suffering in a marriage, there is a reason why it's not just that God allows divorce. It is actually a positive commandment. You know, I think sometimes we forget that God shows up in a loving manner Right. And it's like if you are really unhappy in your relationship and you are being mistreated and it is it is causing you pain, it is actually a positive thing to get divorced. Um, but beyond divorce, within the marriage itself, in terms of healing the marriage and all that, I don't know that insular communities are necessarily aware of like, well, because Western society is saying that we should also I think that this is just happening collectively. True. And we are creating more gorgeous relationships and more gorgeous marriages. Like, I really see that. It's, it's just, it's incredible to witness the marriages that I see today and the relationships and the commitments. And it's just beautiful what I'm observing. What she's saying is it's a double-edged sword because in, in the era of enlightenment, you have more, greater marriages, but at the same time, you have a higher rate of divorce. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the response to that it's helping people in bad situations get out and enabling people who have the potential to repair to repair. Yes. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Divorce is higher than it's ever been because we are letting go of the old structure of marriage. And so anytime you are going through a transformational process, there's going to be collateral damage, which actually is not damaging at all. In order for us to collectively make our way toward the types of marriages that we all deserve and want to be a part of, we need to let go of the old structure that is not serving us, that is keeping some people in mediocre marriages, and that is keeping some people trapped in painful, abusive marriages. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I say like this, do you want to 
you know, when people talk about like being afraid of divorce, what is it? Are you, do you want to stay married or do you want to not get divorced? Why are you in your marriage? And by the way, this is not like me being like a champion for divorce. Like I don't think anybody thinks that. Don't worry. Well, I think that given the fact that I am divorced, I know me when I was in my marriage and I really, really wanted my marriage to work because I really did. I mean, we tried, we really, like both of us showed up and tried our best and gave it our all to repair the marriage. Like really, really tried our best, right? But I so didn't want to get divorced. And so had I heard somebody who was divorced talking about how divorce can be a good thing and we have to like be okay with it. I would we like, like, no, don't say that. What? No, stop making it seem like divorce. Well, your body gets a physical reaction too. Yeah. I would have been like, no, no, no. I don't want to get divorced. Like, don't, don't say that. Tell me how to save my marriage, you know? So I really want to honor that space for a moment. Um, and it's more about instead of our options being like, stay married happy or stay married miserable. True, true. I want to broaden the options to be, let's find a way to stay married happy. And if that is not possible, let's make divorce an option and okay. That's how I want people to start looking at it. You know, because sometimes when we introduce that concept of like, I don't have to be here. So right. if choosing to be here, I'm going to want to be here. And that's gonna require both of us to create a space that we want to be a part of. So how do we do? What do we need to do to get there? With that, I hope that clarifies my stance. Oh, obviously I love you. Okay, we're gonna talk a little bit about the love languages. Let's talk about this as if none of us have heard about it. And I feel like that beginner mindset not only teaches us things that we think we already know, but it opens up our minds to relearning them. What are they? Why are they important? And let's learn. Okay. So I will say that since I plan on continuing this series on my page, okay. I'm not into like specific ways of, of feeding each of the love languages here because you'll get to see that on my page. So let's cover other ground. But as a general concept, I also want to say disclaimer that I have actually never read the book, <laughs> the five love languages book. I, I agree with it. I endorse it. I support it. Um, but largely what I am sharing um, is my own, my own wisdom. What I've shared in the IGTVs is my own thoughts. So how dare you? How dare I be like wisdomous on my how own? How dare you have your own thoughts? Oh my gosh. Right? <laughs> it's a new thing I'm exploring where I am my own citation. It's weird. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. You know, someone on, apologies if you guys have heard me say this on another KIMT, but I, I am so passionate about fitness and I always talk about it and I always give like a similar disclaimer, which is, well, not necessarily similar, but a little bit more of an important disclaimer, which is I have not gone to school for fitness and I'm not a trainer. And somebody sent me like such a wonderful DM and it's, it's a responsibility more so than it's like an ego driven statement. It's just a responsibility to say that. And they say, they're like, it's very clear that you've been working out six days a week for 12 years. Your education and your own process is something worth like sharing, like just stop. It's okay. And I was like, yeah, it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I once saw um, a mom who runs an account be like, people keep asking me for my credentials. Here they are. I am a human. Ooh. I am children. I have been a child. I have given birth. I have lived life. Those are my credentials. And I was like, whoa. I mean, again, within reason, there's a responsibility to, you know, 
you obviously have the training and so there's a certain responsibility it again like speaking of double-edged swords yeah so obviously we're 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 quoting people who have earned that respect by sharing responsibly as i believe i do you do and whoever this woman is seems yeah. to yes okay so oh, diving in uh, what are the five love languages okay so gotta find my charger so the five love languages the original concept was developed by gary chapman he is a marriage and family therapist okay and the premise of the five love languages is how do we give and receive love now what's really important to note that people don't know necessarily about this enjoy the tour of my apartment that people don't know about this is that our languages can actually differ in how we most want to be given love and how we most like to give love so that's a big aha moment right there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i might feel most loved when you offer me touch but i most like to give love through gifts right so it's really nuanced and there's a lot to play with in there but he came up with five different love languages five vehicles for for giving and receiving love and they are touch words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, and acts of service. And so it is through these vehicles that we want to be given love and how we want to be loved by people around us and also how we show love, right? There's also a sixth love language, but I'm not sure if it's Gary that developed that or somebody else, but there is a sixth love language, which I'm gonna go into on my page called Space. Oh, I think that one's mine. Mm hmm which is really, really, and space can be so tricky because when you tell your partner, I feel most loved by you when you, you know, back off and leave me alone, right? That can feel really confronting and like, what? Ouch. When, when we were engaged, and I know that this is a fear that so many people have had, like I remember saying to my parents, like, guys, like, hold up for a second. Like, I love being alone. Like, are you honestly going to tell me that we're going to be brushing our teeth together in the morning? And then obviously we navigated our way through that. But this summer has been the first summer where we're spending the summer in two different cities and my husband comes on the weekends. And I said to him the first week, like, buddy, like, I got to talk to you. I am loving this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he looked at me, he's like, uh-oh. I'm like, why? He's like, I'm loving this. <laughs> and, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, what up? What up? Okay. Well played. Well matched. Like it's been amazing. And everybody says absence make, makes the heart grow founder. That's not even what it is for me. Mm -hmm. It's not what it is. It is so much deeper. And it's like in my friendships who understand my need for space that has nothing to do with the amount of love and the amount of desire that I have to even be with that person. Um, those are my friendships that I've been friends with since I was five and the others that make it about themselves and take it personally are the ones that just end up kind of projecting and making me feel selfish. And it's really not about that. Wow. This is a wonderful therapy session. Let's circle back to the first one. Yes. But space is a really, it's an unknown love. I language. just had like a physical reaction to you saying that. Good. I'm so glad. I'm yeah. so happy for myself. And for, yes. And for people resonating with this. It's going to be so powerful when I do the video on that to be able to explain to your partner how it is that when they give you space, not only do you feel that they see you and then mm -hmm. of love to you, but also it is within that space that you can tap back into your love for them and then offer them love. Right. When we right when we recalibrate. Yes. 
It's like, because if you're always around me, I cannot even figure out if I love you because you're just there. I can't think straight. Also, and, and, and it, I feel like space specifically can get so misrepresented and, and misdefined because it could be, it could be taken as lack of interest or aloofness or flakiness. That's like my, I'm like, I'm always suffering with like flakiness, but it's just not about that. And until you even said this, I consider myself an extrovert, but I very often prefer to be alone. So I'm like, am I an introverted extrovert? But really that's just what it is. I definitely source energy from being around people, but I'd also rather just not be around people. A hundred percent. And somebody brought up in the comments, which is what I was going to say right after, because it's an important um, disclaimer to make that there's a difference between space as a love language and avoidant attachment. Now, mm, I love that. We're not going to get into avoidant attachment on this live. It's actually, I'm going to go very deeply into it in part one of my upcoming relationship class, explaining the attachment systems. Um, but can often overlap in the sense that an avoidant attacher can think that space is their love language when it's really an expression of their avoidant attachment. Mm -mm. And it is their way of claiming the safety, right? Mm -hmm. It's between are you seeking space in order to recalibrate and do you feel loved by that and can you then offer better love versus are you seeking space so that you can feel safe again in the mm. room? Because mm. a attachment says, in order for me to be safe connecting with you, I need to disconnect from you, right? That's avoidance attachment. And it's okay if this is a little bit like, well, for all of you, I'm gonna explain so much more in my course, but it is important to differentiate. Take the course, you guys. What? Take the course, you guys. Um, if anybody felt like a visceral physical reaction hearing the space love language, just like drop a comment so I know we're in it together. And then let's just make a group chat so we can all continue avoiding each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what happens with space as a love language, like you said, that I want to echo, is that when people start demanding too much of your space without respecting you in it, and they're pursuing connection through that, it actually pushes them away. Like, oh, they, like, oh, honey. Like, I don't even want to be friends with you anymore. Like, I don't, I, like, I don't want to talk to you at all. Like, I'd rather have no relationship with you than this sense of pressure between the, the, two, the two of us. The pressure, and I think people whose love language is space also would rather be excluded from every single event if it is, it is accompanied by pressure. Mm -hmm. Like I can say to myself, if I'm like going somewhere that I'm really excited about and somebody's waiting for me outside, I'm like, honey, just go ahead. Like, I'm like, I, I can't, I can't do it. Um, yeah. And and I actually like people. I like being around people, but I think the part for space lovers that is where you feel like you're screaming underwater is that I'm not trying to avoid you. I am not trying to get out of this commitment or this get together, but please stop inserting your perspective on what friendship looks like onto me because you might prefer um, acts of service. And if I keep rebuffing them, you're hurt. But it's it's not the soup I need. It's just you kind of figuring me out. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really the crux of the love languages. Yes. Is really about tuning in to your partner, your spouse, your friend, and being like, I know how I want to give them love. And I know how I want them to give me love. But do I know how they want me to give them love? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wait, hold on, hold on. I just want to absorb I'll, that. I'll repeat it. Exactly. Oh, exactly. That we, they know that we don't know that. They, so <laughs> right? So there's, I want to love you. Let me make it practical. 
right? I want to love you by giving you gifts. I want you to love me by giving me touch. But am I stopping to see you in all of this and realize that you want me to love you through acts of service? Right. Or through space, Right. right? Because really, speaking somebody else's love language means pausing to say, how do they most feel loved? What it is that, what do they want from me? When I started really speaking the people in my lives' love languages intentionally, Ooh. it transformed the way I show up for them. You know, Ooh. for example, you know, Mimi, I, I love using Mimi as an example, right? But like Mimi and I both have words of affirmation as a love language, my cousin, which is like, it, it's helpful in that sense, right? So when she'll send me something, right, whereas with another friend, I would just send, like, a voice note being, like, that looks amazing, that's great, right? But with her, let's say, I'm conscious. Her love language is words of affirmation. So if I then, let's say she'll send me a sample of something that she's, like, written, right? So I know her love language is words of affirmation, so I will then respond back and respond to, like, multiple points, right? Like, with her newsletter, I'll, like, take screenshots of the lines that spoke to me most. And then I'll send her those screenshots. And then I'll also send a voice note to be like, this is how it impacted me, right? Because I'm speaking her language. She does the same for me. We're both like words of affirmation like that, That's right? wonderful. But that's stopping to say, how does this person most feel loved? So can I give it to them in their right. way? Right? I think quality, I've always thought this, but I think people who have quality time as their love language to me are like the loftiest kind of people. Because all they're really saying is, I don't need much. I just want to hang out. And when I took the quiz, this goes back a year, it was like my least important. I'm like, buddy, I love you. But like, I'm good if we hang out once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. But you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, but what's interesting. And this is, I guess, a question for you. But and I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong about what I just said about quality time. But so I would have thought my love language um, would be gifts because I love stuff. And I love getting gifts. And it ended up being that my love language, let's say, is acts of service. And I guess my question on that was my relationship. My husband is the king of acts of service. He's the guy who's filling up my car with gas without me asking and those kinds of things. So did I find my way to that being my love language because I was answering the questions based on the experience that I'm living? Do you get what I'm saying? And like, did did his way of showing me love condition how I think I need it. Does that make sense? Yes, I completely get your question. There's definitely the fact that um, many of our love languages are born out of our lived experiences. Right. So that's first of all, right? My primary love language used to be gifts. And that was at a time in my life and it was directly related to my lived experiences up until that point and what was maybe lacking from my life, right? Because I like I've shared publicly, you know, money used to be really, really, really tight for me. And I also love stuff. So if I didn't have the money, but I love stuff, then my best love language was gifts. Like you can provide for me the thing that I most want, but I cannot afford, right? And as I simultaneously started making money and also getting to know myself on a much deeper level, right? I realized that my primary love language is actually words of affirmation and touch. The love languages can change based on our life experiences. So now, if you buy me a gift, I will mm. still love because I hear your intention in it and that you thought of me. Right. But gifts in themselves 
do not make me feel loved. Right. Right. Unless you happen to figure out the perfect thing on my palette that right. matches my apartment. Like right. otherwise, it's just stuff now. Well, that's why Tova has such a good point where she says the gifts is more about that they know you well enough to know what you like. Um, I want to run through a couple questions. Um, how do well, we give space? Yeah, go ahead. Let me let me correct that for a second. It's not so much that they know you well enough to know what you like. That is actually with love, Tova. That is making the love language conditional. Um, mm. It's not about that they have to get it right. What's mm. under gifts as a love language is that you that they thought of you, that they thought of you enough to get you something, that you mm. showed up on their mind, mm. right? And they cared enough to take action around it and do something for you and buy you something. That's really the crux of it. Because when gifts was my primary love language, it didn't matter to me what you got me. I didn't have to like it. If you happened to get it right, that was like an added bonus. Mm. But like, buy me a chocolate bar. I don't even love chocolate. It doesn't even matter. It's just, you love me enough to get me something. Like it was more, it was more of that underneath it. Um, um, I, I want to answer your other point before we forget about your husband being the kings of, king of acts of service and how is that your love language. To that I would kind of say, like, does it really matter? Does it really matter if really your love language is something else, but you've adapted your love language to what he's really good at? So long as you are content, so long as you are feeling loved by him, right. so long as you are not feeling like, oh, but I wish that he would do this, that would be called for a conversation. You know, like sometimes marriages need to end. You know, at other times, like, it's okay to, like, if this is working for you and you're happy, sure. it's, like, it's great. It doesn't really matter. You love it. You feel loved. He feels like he's providing for you. Gorgeous. Right. It's funny because my next question, once we kind of covered this a little bit, was the pitfalls of leaning into something like knowing your love language of receiving as well as giving and I find a lot of these things, like I'm super into like my zodiac sign and learning other people's, but I always need to have the cognizance to recognize that nothing is written in stone. Same with like, you know, the palettes, recognizing that it's your choice, how, what your iteration of it is supposed to be. So I feel like you bring up a really valuable point, which is don't rely on it. Don't make it the, like the hill you die on. As long as check in with yourself, are you thriving? Then you're good. And if you're not, maybe it's nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. It also depends on where you are in your relationship. I would answer that question differently to somebody that is dating versus somebody that is already married, right? Things matter more or less. Like I dated a guy um, a year ago where I kept like requesting, right? This love language of words of affirmation. And I was very specific with like what I was wanting out of him. And he just, it was like, just not like you not deliver just like not doing it and like not even hearing, you know? And that was like a massive reason why I walked out of that, right? But that was in the early stages of dating. So I had a lot less at stake. I was not bought right. it, right? It wasn't worth it for me to work through it at that point, you know? Right. So my answer to people dating would be like, talk about this on your dates. Start talking about things that like will actually impact your relationship long-term, right? Right. Then my love language is words of affirmation. Like, how are you with, you know, being verbal around things? Like, let's figure this out here and now. What's that going to look like for us? You know, is that something that you struggle with? Do you see yourself, you know, like learning how to do this for me? Like, just know what you're walking into. If you're already within a marriage, right, and you're now discovering your love languages and it's like, 
So there's a difference between we have different love languages versus we have something that is blocking us from giving each other our love languages. Core difference. Love it. I love it. Very core difference. I love that. I went for dinner this week with Gitty Berger, our mutual friend, and Chevy, and we were talking, all three of us were kind of trying to figure out what um, our non-negotiables are in a friendship. So we all said, like, cumulatively, we all need somebody who has passion or drive. It doesn't matter what it is. And um, I was saying that I need somebody who is smart and funny. But by smart, what I mean is I need somebody who understands what I'm saying hopefully the first time because like something simple is like I'll structure my sentences in a way that's kind of like taking you from A to M and then back to A and then to Z and <laughs> and somebody who can understand me on the first go um it's like I feel this like sense of relief when I'm talking because I can you know bring up love languages on a date and you're getting a glazed look from the person you're dating like it doesn't even matter what the love language is you're like I'm checked out you know <laughs> So I feel like that's like also such an important point. So it essentially, it could be that there are elements of words of affirmation that are within my own like way of receiving love because it's a, no, it's a complete non-negotiable to me if I constantly have to explain my brain, if that makes sense. Well, because we don't want to go, relationships is not the space we want to go as an educator, right? right. If right. I have to educate you how to be my friend, then this is not a friendship. Right. This is unpaid internship right i'm not training you in for the right. most part ideally we meet people that are more or less already where we are right. not people have to raise and this is also really important for dating you know like do not date somebody and and pursue a relationship with them if you're gonna have to like train them in oh this whole concept of like training Changing. oh no the training garbage of like just to train a man once you're married to him. Ew! Right. Ew getting a puppy. Like, right. you know, like find people that already are where you are because relationships are a space that we go to enjoy, to relax, to have fun. If we want to work, we will get a job. You know, if we want to train somebody, we will become teachers. But mm -hmm, our, mm -hmm. our safe space is where we want to go to be seen, relax, and be held. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, these are such valuable points. So I got a lot of questions in the question box and a few of them were multiple um, questions that sort of went like this. I feel like I have a bunch of love languages. How do I figure out, um, you know, which one is the one that services me and I can service other people with the most? But there was one person. And so that's question one. But a layer to that was if I feel like I have so many love languages, is it just my need for external validation or do I really need them all? And can I, you know, self-service? So let's first yeah. talk about the fact that you can have two primary love languages. Okay. So let's stretch that. It's not just that you have to pick one. Many people have two primaries. And especially when we talk about what is your love language in which relationship? So for example, one of my primaries is touch. But that's in my intimate relationships. Okay, aside for like, you know, when I'm with like my best friend, Tanya, you know, um, and Mimi, you know, like very, 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 very close people do I like also love cuddling with. And t but other than that, touch is my love language within intimate relationships. Like I do not 
necessarily want to give or receive love via touch outside of that. So your love language is also varied depending on the context. But words of affirmation is my love language in all relationships. So it's also about knowing where you are. And then we have primaries and then secondaries, right? And then within that, no one is going to, like even for you, let's say, right, like quality time is like number five on your list. But that doesn't mean that you would necessarily be content in a long-term relationship of any kind if you never spent time with them. Like eventually, right, that relationship would fade. So all five are expressions of love. But nobody's gonna be like, I'll just like, you know, like I'd rather not have that form of love, right? We appreciate all five, but then it is recognizing our primaries is about how do I most want to give and receive love? Mm. What do mm. I most feel loved by? And deeper, a really great question to ask yourself to figure yours out is, which would I feel empty without? Mm, beautiful, good, that's it. Right there is like, mm. you know, I was in a relationship and my partner was not touching me and touch was missing. I'd be like, why, why are we dating? Like, what are we doing here? This is mm. like, may as well what be friends. My colleague, yeah. I like more friends, so get out, you know? Right. So it's like if words of affirmation was missing, I, would I feel I wouldn't necessarily feel safe in that relationship. Mm. So what when you take it out? Are you like we know come back? But I mm -hmm. could also say take out quality time and be fine. You right. Know? So, so I I want to ask you a little bit about let's say compatibility. So my best friends in second grade, um, we live on the same block now. Our children are best friends. It's a, it's a wonderful fairy tale. We've, we've been best friends forever with no breaks and we love each other. Anyway, um, she and I both are horrible at keeping up. Like quality time is clearly not necessary on both of our accounts. And so I've been away this summer and like, I'm not a phone person. So we'll randomly just text each other like, so in love with you, hope you're having a good day. And she'll write back like obsessed with you, chat later. And then like, we both won't. Um, but there's absolutely no insecurity. There's complete confidence in the coziness and the longevity of the friendship. In any case, so obviously this works you know, and there, what? You know why that is for you specifically? Because I love space. Yeah. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. I know. But in a good way, it allows you to sustain relationships long term and feel deeply connected to people. It is using space to actually support your love for people around you, which is really powerful and beautiful. That's, I love that. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's very funny because I've had so many people in my life who have kind of um, marketed this as something that I feel insecure about because they've created it in a way where Rifki must not care or Rifki's not around, but actually Rifki cares all the time. You're never not on her mind. She's just not... It, it's mm. so I definitely have to work on accessing what they need and meeting halfway with what I need. But the validity of these needs is very present in this conversation. And I'm sure many people feel comforted by it as well. Yeah. And it also depends on which relationship. What is the structure of that relationship? I right. have off the top of my head, three friendships like that in my life that we have been friends since childhood. We maybe have a, a phone call twice a year for like two hours when we get on that phone yes yeah. right no time has right. passed 
we're like diving right into like anything vulnerable, deep, intimate, right? And the rest of the time, it's we do that same, like, you know, I love you to pieces. Like, you know, I, I, am, I love you so much. I'm so glad that you're part of my life. Mwah. That's it, right? Yeah. Um, but it depends, right? So from those relationships, I don't necessarily need um, what I would need in my day-to-day relationships because different relationships serve different needs of ours. So if right. my relationships were like that, that would be a problem. I cannot go, I cannot go three hours without talking to some of my people, you know? So, so I, so it's funny because of my handful of people, I can go days and like, it's even my sisters. I'm not spending the summer with them. And they're like the people I speak to nonstop throughout the day. I leave my phone for 10 seconds and there's 300 messages. Um, Almost the same. I'll be like, we'll be on the phone. And this applies to the friend I was talking about. I'm like, babe, like I'm tapped out. I got to go. Like I'm tapped out. And they're like, okay, cool. And it's great. And I'll hang up. But part of why I'm telling you this is yes, to be like inject an anecdote, but also because there's a question. How does compatibility um, affect the love language um, energy exchange positively? And can incompatibility affect it negatively? And how do we kind of navigate all of that? Phenomenal question. Great. The only way that you can be incompatible via love languages is if one of you has some sort of blockage or resistance or missing skill related to the other person's love language. I'm going to explain that. Now, depending on what relationship that is in your life, that's how much it will impact. So if it is a friend, It means you might distance the relationship or formulate the relationship around this struggle within a marriage, let's say, or long-term partnership, somebody that you are living with, it becomes a lot more complicated. Now, let me make this practical, and then I'll explain more. So if my love, let's say I'll use this guy that I dated in the summer as a great example, right? And I ended up married to him, right? My love language is words of affirmation. He could not do it. I mean, I mean, could not do it, like, but like really could not do it. The most basic of things in conversations, right? Where I was like, I want you to ask me questions to get to know me. That shows me that you're interested, right? He's like, I get to know people through like shared experiences, right? What a brat, like, (laughs) right? What, like, first of all, even just fake it, like just fake that you care and ask me these questions so I know you're faking it and do it once. Like that response is just callous and I'm so angry. Well, I'm actually really glad that he was on it. True, true. Clear to me. Now more evolved. For my part, thankfully, I have learned to believe people when they show you are, right? And not create compatibility in my fantasy mind, right? But let's say with that, right? That creates an incompatibility. Not because we have different love languages, right? Because his love language was 100% acts of service and quality time, right? So it's not because we have different love languages, but because there is a resistance, a blockage, an inability to speak my love language. Whether he's not willing to actually lean in and do the work, whether he has his own childhood trauma that made you know, intimacy and vulnerability via words of affirmation feel overwhelming for him or difficult or inaccessible to him, whether he's just not willing to actually do the self work, it would require right. to learn this skill, right? right? 
whatever the blockage is, there we are not compatible. Right. But not because we have different love languages, right? Right. Compatibility thing with somebody whose love language is touch, right? Let's say you have somebody who has experienced significant sexual trauma in their past, and now touch brings up a whole lot of triggers for them and a whole lot of overwhelm, that can cause complications within a relationship or within a marriage. Your love language is touch, you have trauma around touch. Which doesn't necessarily make you incompatible, but it might mean that both of you are gonna have to be aware and committed and conscious of the fact that while Blink is working through their trauma, your need for touch as a love language is going to have to be on hold Right, or understanding or more empathy and can you handle that what will that look like what agreements can you write around that mm-hmm. so it's more that and this mm-hmm. really you're communicating with your partners with your friends saying this is my love language when i tell right. you that my love language is space or touch or quality time what comes up for you around that like how right. do you feel about offering that does that feel hard for you where do you see it being difficult what are you willing to do around this like Right? Can we negotiate some agreement around this? At what point do you insist on, or I, I don't know, like at what point do you hit the, the silver or bronze medal of your love languages if, if your partner or your friendship is really not able to access giving that to you? Does that make sense? Yes. Great question. So with something like that, it's going to come down to two questions. First of all, everything else worth it mm. okay there, I love that is there enough glue and right and enough attractiveness and enough connection compelling. right is it, exactly is there a, compelling enough within that relationship that it doesn't feel like you're giving something up it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing it feels like what you are getting is worth it so there's that that's a really important question to consider and then the other thing is, hold on, sometimes I have two thoughts at once, and if I don't write them I know. By the time I Sometimes I'll bomb you with like six questions because I can't stop, and you just have to deal with the backlash. <laughs> Wait, hold on, I had something good to say. Um, could you repeat the question, and then I'll have I, the Oh, well, that's a tough order. That's a tall order. I, I think it was, um, at what point does it become an issue if they can't give you what you believe it needs? And when do you tap into peripheral or secondary or tertiary love languages? And can those be satisfying if you okay. access them? All right, so question one is, is there enough compelling, um, in, like, um, use the word compelling, right? Is there enough else in the relationship that it makes it worth it? And number two is, what is it costing you to not receive that love language. Right. Because if you are gonna say, yeah, like there's enough good, but then inside you're gonna feel empty and lacking and resentful, that is going to come out in your relationship at some point. So you're not doing anybody a service by saying you'll be okay with it. To right. Keep the peace or to keep the relationship or to like make your partner feel like it's okay, it's okay. Like you bending yourself into a pretzel, no. Like, it's not going to go well in the end. So you have to get honest, right? And then you have to bring to the table, right? Like, you know, I know that this isn't your forte or your expertise. So you have this blockage. Like, here are some things that are really non-negotiable for me around this. Like, I have, I have, you know, taken my, my lovely language of touch down to, like, two things that are really non-negotiable. And if I do not receive them, I am going to feel right. it. And I don't want that between us. 
Mm-hmm. So I want to speak to my own experience, which is the only experience I can speak to, but there was a positive scenario that happened um, with regards to my love language and a negative one. And I want to talk about both and how it's really two to tango. The first one is if you see Elias, the brand watching, that's Chevy. She's my best friend. We spent the summer together. So before we kicked off the summer, I called her and I said, I just want to like communicate this to you. There will be days when I don't want to hang out and there will be days that I'm just not around and there will be days that I don't want to hang out because I'm working. And there will also be days that our kids fight and we as mothers cannot let it affect our friendship and we have to understand that they're kids. And I'm worried about committing to spending a summer with you because I need space all the time. And so I kind of just want to get that out there. And her response was like, okay, like, hi, obviously, like, like that goes without saying, but thank you for saying. And it was just a quick, wonderful conversation. I never had to be worried throughout the summer that if one of us needed something, and it was great. Um, In another situation, what happens is when you're constantly fighting to receive the love language that is a non-negotiable for you and you're not getting it, what happens is, is you almost have to self-market yourself as risky equals space because you're constantly trying to vocalize or you know, actualize that you need it. And so what happens is, oh, Rifki, she needs space. And so it becomes this big, bad monster. And you start becoming somebody who only needs space because you're not getting it. And so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's like, well, if you don't, let's say it's words of affirmation. Well, if you don't tell her a compliment, if someone's stingy with giving you that words of affirmation or whatever the definition of it is for you. um, And it becomes this big, bad wolf instead of, and so there's this push and pull because as the person is getting insulted that you um, need space or finding you needy, that you need words of affirmation, you start staking a claim and needing that even more. And so what happens is, this convergent reaction happens until if the relationship is not compelling enough, it isn't like not sustainable. So I feel like it really just comes down to holding space for what that person needs and not inserting yourself into their narrative because it will never end well. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Okay, I love that you brought up those two examples because the difference in the outcomes of both lies in the other person. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's funny because I've been blaming myself for so long. And so that's a really important point. I'm about to change that for you. Oh, change my world. This is going to be a little coaching. Tonight's our night, girl. This is going to be a little aha moment for you. You are being honest and expressing your truth, stating your needs and expressing your boundaries in an authentic, loving way. So you are showing up healthy in all of those relationships. So what is different is how the person is receiving them. So now Chevy, how Chevy's receiving it, Chevy is receiving it in a healthy way. She, mm. that this is your thing and she appreciates you and values you and is able to support your need in this, respect your boundary and not take it personally. And that's why your relationship is growing stronger through this communication. The other people, something about your request for space is triggering a wound in them, a fear in them, an insecurity in them, right? A struggle in them. And they are then projecting that onto you. And they are then making it seem like you're doing something hurtful to them. 
and you are not showing up for them and you don't give to them. And those people might have narratives in their own mind of like, see, nobody ever wants to give for me. See, I can't ever rely on people. See, nobody wants to spend time with me. People always want space from me. I'm not mm -hmm. Whatever the story they have going on in their mind, that mm -hmm. is they are hearing what you have just shared with them. And the reason why I know for a fact that, that they are the difference in outcomes is because you are showing up the same in each situation. Mm -hmm. But what happens is as you feel like your needs are not being heard or your, your boundaries are just not um, important, you become, you know, defensive and you become you start caustic. To you become caustic and you become resentful. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is maybe initially I was um, expressing myself the way I expressed myself to Chevy. But over time, what happens is I become a bit of a brat about needing space because mm -hmm. I'm constantly having to apologize and defend it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so what I'm left with is I'm, I'm like a bit of a brat and I'm a bit of a shrew and I'm a bit of somebody who appears to be self-centered because all that's left is give rifty space or else. So what when I really people who hold space for your boundaries. That's the last thing that they define you as you're not apologizing for how you show up in relationships. I'm done. When that starts coming up for you, that is time for you to rethink the relationship. Not you, not rethink your boundaries, not rethink how you see yourself, not start joining their narrative and looking at yourself the way they're looking at you and being like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I am rigid or shrew or demanding or bratty or needy. When you've entered that space, you have allowed yourself to go too far. You have started betraying yourself because they've been asking you to. Mm -hmm. That's it's time for you to pull back and say, no, 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 something went wrong here. Like at some point I joined their war against me, but it's really their war against their own wounds. Correct. And now you're fighting that battle with them and you never needed, right? There's a difference between hearing your friend's desire, right? And saying like, okay, so I hear that my need for space is, is difficult for you and triggering for you. So let's discuss ways that I can support you through it without self-sacrificing. Mm -hmm. right? So I know that for you, that's triggering. It brings up your fears of abandonment or disconnect. So here's what I can offer you to help you soothe that while still not sacrificing my own needs and boundaries. Or at a certain point, you might need to say, this relationship is starting to require me to, sac to, to, to betray myself or leave. And given those two options, I will be taking steps back. Let's talk about, in this era, touch on one. Of course. Well, yeah, please. Um, can it be that they have anxious attachment? Absolutely, it can be. Generally speaking, people with anxious attachment are very, very, very triggered when another person asks for space in any shape or form. The primary goal of an anxious attacher is to connect, to connect, to connect. And if the connection is threatened or has been weakened, then the anxiousness comes out and now I have to reconnect and reconnect and reconnect. Mm -hmm. Whatever the cost, right? I will hurt you in the process. I will hurt me in the process. I will right. hurt our relationship in the process. So long as we reconnect or I, I cannot calm down until, right? That's really right. anxious attachment coming to the surface. So, Rifty, you would be very triggering for people with anxious attachment. And that doesn't mean 
that you need to be the answer for them and see them. This is a mirror for them, right? You can, as you just let you off the hook, you can support them, but it is not your job to heal their anxious attachment for them, right? So talking a lot about attachment styles in my class and if this is like resonating when I'm talking about attachment styles you really should take my class <laughs> I mean you should take my class regardless but yeah listen um something that you just said oh in this era of enlightenment and accessing boundaries and taking care of yourself and seeking happiness over you know a previous perception of stability and what things should look like um Where do you draw the line between finding boundaries in a healthy way and becoming um, and not considering other people's needs? Such a great question. Like, such a good question. And I can actually personally respond to that question, having gone through my own journey with this. Okay. Um, I've shared... I've shared in the past that I used to identify as heavily codependent. Okay. Um, and I mean, codependency is like a huge topic to like really get into it and explain it. But essentially, right, codependency comes down to the fact that I will always choose you over me. I will choose us over me. Mm. I will care more about your needs than my own. I will solve your problems for you. Mm. Why not? Um, and I will do all of that because I need us to be connected. Like if I am not connected to you, I feel lost and untethered and unsafe and shaky. And that also means that even if the relationship isn't serving me or the other person isn't treating me right, I will swallow that and I will accept it. And by the way, yes, most anxious attachment also is code. Most anxious attachers also have codependency within them, right? I'm not familiar with the attachment styles. Is that a big topic or something that we can just kind of break down now? No? Okay. It's big and it okay. really is about how do we attach to others? It's the way that we think, feel, and behave in the context of relationships. Got how it. do we want to attach? Do we have secure attachments? Are we anxious attachers of mm. attachers? Right? And in most cases, <laughs> obviously, all the anxious attachers find the avoidant attachers, and then it's like, wait, but we have to be so close. Oh my God. Just you're stay away from me. What? Stay away from me. Mm -hmm. right? I have a question. Yes. Um, just um, creating parallels between the love languages and the attachment styles. And again, this is my first time hearing about attachment styles, so obviously my, my knowledge is limited. But would you say that people, let's say, who spaces their love language are secure attachers and people, let's say, for example, who um, need quality time are, are, no. Okay, so. Comes down to, which is similar to what I said before, right? Um, it comes down to what is the underlying need behind the love language? Got it, got it. You need space because you feel like the other person is going to suffocate you and connection scares you. Are you seeking space in order to disconnect in some way, in order to, right, remove yourself from the intimacy, which does not sound like you, Rifki? Or, no. or are you seeking space in order to actually 
enjoy the connection more in order to recalibrate yourself in order to yes. connect yourself right that's the difference between avoidance attachment and space as a love language so in general right with quality time do we want quality time because we're anxious attachers do we want quality time because we like quality time it comes down to the energy underneath it do you okay, need I quality think, yeah. time because you're anxious about it and if we don't spend quality time then our relationship is going to fall apart and you're going right. to love me and then you're not going to want to be with me that's right. the Right? That's not a love language. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> but it's funny because, um, you know, I, I think it's funny because almost everyone in my family, um, I would say that, I don't know, I can't speak if it's their first or fifth, but we all rely on space. And I think for a lot of us, what it is, is like our, I, I can't speak for my siblings, but my brain gets fatigued because it doesn't have the silence that it needs in order to create or to work out on my own time or to quietly prepare a photo shoot without, let's say, my friends who I love dearly coming and trying all the food as I'm doing it. And it's not that I don't want them around and it's not that I get flustered by their presence, but the, but the process to me is sullied by almost the noise of it. And, and I, I, I like, quiet in my brain and so if I'm constantly not having the quiet in my brain because I want to respond respectfully to a comment somebody is telling me because I don't want to be a jerk then my brain is doesn't get the quiet that it needs and I'm depleted mm -hmm. yes you know what about kids being around sorry go ahead so that's the difference right where space for you is not a mechanism to disconnect no space for you is a mechanism to come back into your center in a healthy mm. That is really the core difference, right? It's also why I work late at night. I wait until the rest of the world goes to sleep and then I produce my workshops. That's why I'm up at 2 a.m. creating PowerPoint slides because no one is messaging me and taking me out of that space. So I totally relate to that. You know that superpower feeling when you're jet lagged and you're like busting out those emails when you know everybody else will be getting it at 4 a.m. And you're like, I'm amazing. And I'm going to keep this routine even when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's like, how do I get back on this clock? This is a great. Right. No, no, no. This is my new circadian rhythm. And in fact, I am Jeff Bezos, <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, in terms of space being a love language with kids, is the question how do you honor your love language for space when you have kids? Is that the question? The answer is it's hard. <laughs> yes, I just want to confirm that that's the question before um, and answer it. I thought uh, this was good. Does love language come from your upbringing? Oh, well, we talked about that a little bit. If your siblings need space, is that developed from your childhood? So we talked about that being learned experiences, but I'd love for you to elaborate. So sometimes it's, it's a mix of lived experiences and just our natural tendencies. Right. So sometimes you will have children because children have love languages also. And if you start paying attention to your kids, you can see what is their love language. So some of us are naturally born with our own relationship with love. Sometimes it is a response to what we are missing. Right. And what we really crave. Sometimes it is if we have had a good experience with these things. Right. And sometimes life happens and we end up leaning more toward a love language, right? Because of some wounds or some difficulty, right? Like for example, my real love language is words of affirmation, but I spent years not knowing that and not connecting with that because I had blockages around vulnerability and emotional intimacy. So how can your love language be words of affirmation if you struggle to be verbally expressive, right? And connect 
on a vulnerable, intimate level with people. So once I healed those blockages and I felt safe and comfortable being intimate and vulnerable and verbally expressive, then I was like, oh my God, I love the way this feels more than anything else. This is my primary love language. So they also evolve over time. Like we are not fixed, right? Like what you said, like don't get rigid with your love language, right? And, and close yourself off to all others. We are constantly evolving and growing and meeting ourselves on deeper levels. And through that, you know, I saw um, on Sylvie Caucasian's Instagram account, shout out to Sylvie who has the most gorgeous content. She had this post that was so beautiful and it said to love somebody is to attend a thousand funerals of who they no longer are. And to love somebody is to attend a thousand births of who they become. Yeah, I love that. And I was like, oh, isn't that what we I, all I love that. Grow and evolve and, and be met where we are. Beautiful. I love that. I love that so much. I think one of my pet peeves is when people are constantly referring to people in the way that they used to know them. And it's just so, it's so dark to me. Like, I don't actually mean dark as in scary. I mean, like, there is no light in that perspective. I'm just like... Yeah, we're not doing that anymore. We're, we're letting people be who they want to be right now. And that's okay. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Um, something that you just said. Yes. I want to ask you. So what is a relationship that has successfully giving you, that is successfully giving you words of affirmation? What does that look like? Because I don't know much about it. Yeah. A lot of it looks like, um, like what I shared, let's say in that video, right? Where I spoke about words of affirmation and I broke it down. Um, for me, it depends on if in that moment, um, I'm just, it's words of affirmation based in pleasure or words of affirmation based in need, right? So if let's say a conflict comes up, so then via words of affirmation, I'm going to need the other person to show up for the conversation, right? I'm going to need the other person to, to go in, to join me there, to not leave me hanging, right? Like the worst thing you can do to a words of affirmation person is like if they express being upset, you know, about something, and then you're like, okay, I'll get back to you and let's talk about it in three days, right? right. And so like, no, 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 I need to talk about it now, like words of affirmation. Or or like being like, you know, uh, dismissive. So just, mm -hmm. which nobody likes, but you know, if, if you brought something up that was a hard conversation and somebody responded, you know, I hear you, you'd throw your phone at the wall. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you something because I feel like anybody would. So how, how does it change for somebody with words of affirmation where that becomes like, you know, blindingly disappointing when they're not receiving it? Meaning if I opened up to somebody and if words of affirmation are not my love language and they didn't respond in the way that I hoped that they would, I would also be angry. But how does that result shift for somebody whose love language is dependent on receiving that thing? So with all love languages, right, and this was really one of my intentions in creating this series was to expand our understanding of love languages so that we have more options. Because when we limit words of affirmation to compliments, there is one way to succeed and a thousand ways to fail, right? Because then it's like, if, if words of affirmation is reduced to compliments, then unless my partner or my friend is complimenting me, they are not feeding my love language, and then I feel empty, right? If touch is just re relegated to sexual touch, and then that's the only time, right? That's only one way to feed my love language. I'm constantly feeling empty and it's so disappointing, right? So the first thing is to stretch our understanding of love language and put tons of options on the table. Give your partner or your friend a buffet 
of ways to feed your love language, right? And that's where, so simultaneously tell them, here are like 10, 10 formats of my love language. And I would feel loved, I would feel so loved if you did all 10, but any of the 10, feed my love language, set each other up for success. And so this way, they also get to say, like these three, are just like really out of my wheelhouse right now or I'm uncomfortable, or I'm not ready for that, I don't have the skill set, I don't want to. But these seven, baby, I could do that. I could do that for you. Like, thank you for giving me ways, you know, which is the other yeah. thing, right? The other, you know, one of your questions was like, how do we not get rigid around it? Is to not lock yourself into one way of right. love. And, and if you're a partner, right? Because it's like, well, I told you my love language is touch. So again, you should know how to love me and you should know what I want all the time. I communicated. I told you my love language was tough. And it's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't mean your communication ends. Right. It's a conversation. It well, is I think the goal of all of these things is to learn ourselves in a different way. So when we are so relying on the mathematical equation given by a course or a self-help book, self-help book and not tuning into our own instincts, then we've, we've just enabled another crutch in the way we access relationships as opposed to using them as a way to utilize knowing of ourselves deeper. Mm-hmm. It's not a relationship diet. It's a relationship lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I think the goal is constantly recap. What'd you say? Intuitive loving. Yes. Oh my God. So mm-hmm. are we about to co-write a book? I mean, I feel like we just did. I feel like it's about to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, yeah. but something else that you just said. Um, you just said also. I'll let you because I wrote mine down. No, you go because I forgot mine. Okay. It's another really important point is that we stop placing the whole desire of our love language onto one person. And that is another massive shift that I am seeing in marriages and in relationships. Mm. Finally, we are no longer... Hopefully, right? That's what I want to encourage all of you, to invite all of you to stop seeing your spouse as responsible for providing all of your needs for you. They are ne- your, your spouse was never, ever meant to be your lover, your spouse, your partner, your co-parent, your companion, your entertainer, your playmate, your friend, your guide, your therapist, your support system, your parent. No, right? We place all this pressure on like marriage is going to be the most important relationship in your life and you're being right, trained right. a good wife and you're being trained to be a good husband. And then it's like, right. and now like within this marriage, it has to be everything for you and they have to provide right. for you. And so if your spouse isn't providing your love language, then like, how could you possibly be happy? And like, no, come back, come back. You are supposed to have, you know, a husband and girlfriends and mentors and right. therapists and acquaintances and coworkers, and maybe your husband is going to provide your love language of touch through stroking and caressing your face and maybe your girlfriends right. are going to provide your love language of touch through squishy hugs and right. maybe you know when you go to retreats you're going to cuddle some of the people there like please stop making one person responsible for everything or their love language is going to be space from their so, Oh my God, honey. Yes. I, I, I feel so, and I, I see you guys also are resonating with this. I, and I, somehow this comes up on every live, I guess it's because it's so important to me, but as women and as if you are a wife and if you are a mother, if your only definitions that come to your mind is I am a wife and mother, when your kids grow up or when 
You got to have something that's just your own. You got to have something. And even if you start it without realizing I am doing something that's just my own, as somebody self-professed 100% of creative, I started my Instagram account just because I wanted to feel creative. And the result of feeding the beast of my creativity has led to opportunities that I could never could have imagined. And so that's a need I have. Not everybody has that need. But I think that even if it's not a pressing need, we all need to have things that are just our own. And I, 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 that speaks to me in a major way. Yes, a hundred. Yeah. Um, and especially for women, this happens so much in the context of other female friendships. True. Other women remind you that you are a woman. Other women remind you that you are fun and passionate and creative. You know, after my, my, my best friend, um, we got divorced within three weeks of one another. It was like just mm. the craziest. One day we'll share our actual stories, but it was just like the craziest, like just nuts. nuts. It was just nuts. It's, the stories are going in the book. Oh, they are 100% going in the book. <laughs> going in the book. <laughs> like it was just like the most not normal thing, like that, the way that it played out, et cetera. Um, and so in that like year after our divorce, in the year and a half after our divorces, um, I all of a sudden found myself without a social life because mm. I, you know, I was living in Miami and my husband was from Miami. So you know how it is. So much of your social life gets wrapped up in your marriage and in your right. friends. And it was a lot of his friends, right? So all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I don't have like friends here. Like I don't have a social life, right? And so I started feeling like really stressed out. And now in the meantime, you know, my best friend Tanya is an introvert. So she's fresh off of a divorce, single parent to two kids, like overnight, newborn baby. She's an introvert. And here her best friend is like, I need to have a social life. I need to have a social life. All right. And it was like, so like overwhelming for both of us. And what we started doing is we set up date nights with the two of us every Wednesday night we had with the two of us and it was you know and in the beginning i felt a little bit bad because i'm um, because it originally started off where she was like i want to support your social life like should we have weekly date night and i'm like oh my god i would love that thank you so much i had learned how to receive by then you know um but you know for we we have kept to it till today it's been like two years you know but for her that meant and i really want to um hone in on her in all of this because I know so many people hearing this are like when am I gonna have time to like also just be a woman and also have my passions and also be creative like Alea you don't have kids like you don't understand what it's like to have to balance like a spouse it's just a, how important is it to you that's to me having three children it was so important to me that without it I felt a void so mm -hmm. I needed to find a way in a healthy way to figure out what was going on inside and what that was and it, I'm only saying this retroactively. There wasn't a lot of foresight going into it. It was just a pull and a calling. And now, as I've self-described um, myself as being 100% a creative, every decision that I make is aligned with all of that. Mm -hmm. But when you are not tuned in to hear enough, when your whole right. is wife and mother, and you do not pathway into me, would you feel that void? Would you feel that pull? Would you feel that calling? Right. Would you, know no. what, would you understand what is coming up in you when you are so outwardly giving, right? So for some women, even realize why they are feeling discontent or, or off. 
they don't even recognize that it is this need to establish themselves, you know? And I really want, I use Tanya as an example because I get all the excuses. I get it. I get all the excuses of like, I don't have time for it. Where would I do it? And I'm going to tell you that Tanya, newly single mom of two little babies, freshly divorced, hired a babysitter every Wednesday night, paid for a babysitter every Wednesday night for us to go out. And it was both of our saving grace, both of us. It got her out of being like single, divorced, single mom, you know, drowning in that, right? It helped her reclaim herself as woman. It helped her recenter herself as finding herself and, and relating to herself, you know? I think it is so important. I think the same is true for men, by the way. I think yeah. we need to have relationships with other men. So much of their growth comes from other men. Like, it is so important for men to have their space where they get to, right? Like, when I when I get married again, you better believe I'm having girls' weekends. You better believe my husband is having, like, you know, men's weekends, going off with his friends. Like, you better believe I'm doing that when I have kids. And I know you're all like, wait until you have kids. No, 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 no. It's not true. You are who you are, whether you have kids or not. I still am a big believer in that, in what you're saying. And I think also what happens is when you feel safe and secure in your relationship, whether that's a, a romantic relationship or a friendship, you're okay not having it perfectly. For example, I love going out. Um, I love partying. I love all of that stuff. My husband does not. And there have been a few times where he's come out because he knows that I love that. And I've been excited because I was kind of annoyed. Like, well, I don't understand. I'm married now. What does that mean? Like, we're never going out because he doesn't like to. So obviously we would go out less. And then a few times he came out with me. Once I saw that he made that effort for me, and I also saw that he probably wasn't really enjoying himself because he was just trying to be cute for me, the need for him to come out with me completely dissipated because I knew I could access it when I needed to. And I knew that he respected my need. And so he was willing to put himself in that situation for me. So I got over it and I got over it and I respect his need. Oh, hey, that's my husband. I party way harder than you. He parties in a different way. He parties in a very different way. Yes, I should say he parties, but in a different way. Um, I wait for you to leave the house. Yes, it's been an interesting summer for him. <laughs> I think we place a tremendous amount of pressure on ourselves, like to give our children what they need and also love giving it to them in the moment. Like every single time you make kids for your food, you feel like Mary Poppins. Like right. every single time you're like so excited. No. Right. Sometimes we give our kids and other people what they need, even if we're not having the best time. And that's still important. Um, and what I'm hearing also in what you're saying, and what I think so many people resonate with, is that underneath that is how do we perceive love? Do we see love as a reward? Do we see mm, yes. something that has to be earned? Mm. How do we see self-regulation? Do you have to earn self-regulation? Do you have to deserve me showing up for you? Right? Do you have to deserve me loving you? And in that is, is love conditional or unconditional? Because conditional love says, you have to be worthy of my love in this moment. You have to be deserving it. You have to have earned it. And then I will give it to you. Right. But if you don't deserve it, if you're not behaving well, right, then you are not deserving of love. But that's if we see love as a reward. 
when really love, especially when it comes to children, exclusively when it comes to children, is a birthright. They are automatically deserving of it all the time. And like you discovered, it is actually the pathway to self-regulation, right? It's not that like, when you start talking nicely, then I can be nice back, right? How often do we say things like that? You know, whether those are the words we're using or not, but it's actually, right? You need my help in order to come back to talking nicely. Correct, correct, correct. Uh, I, I, and, and again, we also have to remember, we're not talking about somebody in their 30s. This is a little kid. They don't have the toolbox yet. So by showing them love, care, attention, and patience when they need it the most, you are teaching them that they can give that to themselves when you're not around. Mm-hmm. Yep. And touch in itself is self-regulating, by the way. Right. Touch itself. And I can explain the science of it. You know, essentially like the outer coating of our brain is the same embryonic tissue um, that exists on the surface of our skin. So that is why out of all of the five senses, touch is the only one that we actually cannot live without. So when you touch another person, right, you're, it's the same tissue, skin to skin, as what's coding their brain, which actually helps their brain regulate and process and create the pathways that you need for them to get to a better place. That's like in a, in a tiny little nutshell, you know. But I had a similar story with a student once. He was like in a very aggressive space, hitting other kids, you know, and He was two and a half years old. I will never forget this teaching story. It was at this point, a decade ago. Holy crap, a decade ago. And he had just hit another kid in the class. And I approached him to talk to him about it. And he started backing away from me, all panicked. Mm. I was like upset at him, like hitting again. Like, why you hit, you know, like in my head, right? And then thank God, something like clicked in me. And I just got down on my knees. And I was just like, Daniel, you need a hug right now? And that boy <coughs> melted. I mean, he was like, it was like everything in him just like released, right? And he was just like, yeah. And then he gave me this hug. It was like at least two and a half minutes long. And then after that, the conversation was so simple. It was like so easy then to like sort it out and problem solve and get to the root of it and work it out with him. And it was just such a powerful moment for me of like, when it comes to children, love never fails. It's very different with adults. We do not offer adults unconditional love. Very different. Adults, no, 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 right? Unconditional love does not show up in marriages. Parent to child, unconditional love. It is the one relationship where it is unconditional. For anybody who wants to find you, um, whether they're watching now or um, will be listening to the podcast, please let us know how we can just stalk the living daylights out of all of the content that you produce. So primarily I operate from my Instagram page at Alea B Coaching. I do have a podcast, which my rule when I created my podcast was that it's a place I will only go to for fun. So I have not released an episode in a couple of weeks because I've been busy with other stuff. Like I don't push myself around that. Um, I have courses. So I have old courses of mine that are available for sale on the topics of sex, like sex for adults, sex ed for kids, self-regulation. Um, this is going to be my new relationship course. Eventually, I will write a book. Um, yeah, you will. Yeah, and I just—I'll write the foreword. Yes, yes. Um, I just went through a rebrand with my page, so part of the rebrand means that I have some really exciting new features coming out for my page 
that I'm in the process of creating more ways that you guys can connect with me, um, can ask me your questions. I have some new features roll being rolled out for that. Over Ooh, good for you. It's very exciting. That's major. This has been by far the longest and absolutely every minute enjoyable, purposeful, and a wonderful experience for me and for everybody who stayed on. So thank you for being on. Thank you for saying yes. And thank you for chatting. You are so welcome. This has been so much fun. I'm going to go take care of my laundry. I can't wait to all of you in my course. I am super excited. Maybe we should find out, like, I would love if anybody is signing up because of this live and because of tuning in, I would like you to tell me because I feel like it would be a really good feeling to know that after this incredibly insightful, entertaining and educational conversation, we are all embarking, embarking on furthering our education together. So send me a DM. Yeah. I would love to know. Yes, I'm in. I'm in for knowing that as well. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, good night. Thank you. Bye. And that's all for today, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, I would love if you subscribed. And if you're really next level vibing, leave me a positive review so we can keep the circle of positivity going. Of course, you can find our guests' information in the show notes and find more of me on my Instagram and website at Rifki Rabinowitz and RifkiRabinowitz.com. Have a good one, okay? Stay cool.